Hi, and welcome to Showcast. In this episode, we're looking at the spectacle that is Block 9's Icon, the brand new stage that was unveiled at this year's Glastonbury Festival in Somerset. I'm really excited to be chatting with Mike Wilson, the production's technical director and 3D artist. I was absolutely blown away by this stage at Glastonbury. This megalithic head-shaped structure is something right off of Easter Island or Planet of the Apes. Icon is a beautifully formed 30-metre head masked by a VR headset. It's an impressive architectural showpiece in and of itself, but at night it comes alive. LED panels in the VR visor glow with bespoke content and three-dimensional video maps onto the entire structure, animating the surface of the head for an incredible viewing experience. Mike hasn't got a website and operates purely word of mouth, so this is your only opportunity to get behind the scenes access of this elusive designer's workflow. Just a quick note on sound quality. This episode was recorded before we got our studio set up, so it's going to sound a little more echoey than usual. But I hope you enjoy the episode. I'm Kat Kemsley, and this is The Notch Showcast. Hello again. Hi, Mike. Hi, Kat. How are you doing today? Great, thanks. What was your first ever show? Well, we did something in Slovakia in um, Bratislava with the uh, British Council. It was, it was um, a Neil LeBoot play, I think, called Bash. And um, it was us in a stuck in a kind of bedroom for three weeks, desperately using awful gear, trying to get this stuff done. One hour of video. It was fairly painful, but we're young, so it's fun too. You know, I spent a lot of time since then trying to make it less painful. <laughs> yeah, and what was the uh, like first kind of software that you picked up that got you into uh, designing video and moving image for shows? Um, well, I started in video games at the start of my career, and and that real time aspect was something I thought would always be good in live shows. But uh, I, I met a VJ and just sort of lo- loved what he was doing, quit my job and f- hooked up with him for a bit. Uh, it actually ended up being 15 years. But All right, so were you VJing for 15 years? No, I started VJing and um, realised it's quite a, a thankless thing, and probably unless you're doing huge shows, but we weren't. So a lot of work and most people in Britain at the time couldn't care less so so was it kind of playing lots of electronic gigs and clubs yeah yeah there was a few of those but then we got into this theater thing quite quickly so how was uh transitioning from i guess that can be quite different isn't it from the club world into theater yeah but that's what i loved about it i loved the fact that you you're servicing a story now and not not just abstract random stuff that people kind of were into but they're not you know if, if it wasn't there they wouldn't ruin their night whereas if uh if the dj went down you know that would ruin the night it's mainly the kind of the the the, the amount of work it took versus the level of interest at the time uh, whereas theater was you could see it was part of this the whole the whole package and it was much more interesting i thought i work a lot with a bunch called creative works london who i do a lot of stuff with guns and roses for them um We've been doing that since they reformed um, a few years ago. Did the whole Not In This Lifetime tour, which is still kind of going on a few years later. And that's been brilliant. There's 
Noctua Studios, did Metallica, worked with them a bit. Build Studios as well, brilliant team, probably best in the world at what they do. So I'm lucky enough to work with really good people, I think. And how did you meet these these teams? How did you meet these people? Has it just being uh, on the scene for, uh, you know, being around, being on the scene or? Yeah, I think so. I think, uh, I think I haven't even had a website for ages. They find you don't really need one. It's just word of mouth and um, uh, getting, at, I think that's it. It's mainly word of mouth, to be honest. This year you played a really integral part uh, in the design for Block 9's new stage icon. I saw it at Glastonbury and absolutely blew my tiny mind. Um, and it was definitely one of the most kind of, mem- I'd never been to Glastonbury before and that was the most like memorable stage for me. So it's kind of, it's a cross between a stage and a sculptural artwork. Block Nine's founders, Stephen Gallagher and Gideon Berger, they described the stage as a pseudo-religious monument to the terrifying new realities emerging in our digital, data-driven, post-truth age. Um, how would you describe Icon to someone who's never seen the stage before? Oh, I'd use those exact words, obviously. <laughs> um, yeah, th- it's a sculptural stage that has a meaning to it, which is unusual i think i think it's basically it's this idea that it's looking back on you as you're looking at it as well as the visor can represent quite a lot of things you know virtual reality or also the sort of endless te- technological oppression almost that we we're subjected to okay um and so i just react to it on my own terms which is a it looks really cool um <laughs> b I, I think the i think the divisor with the screen is is a very very evocative of whether we're blinded by technology or whether it helps us or you know i think that i could say they describe it slightly better in in better words so had you guys worked together before yep we did a bit of work on um skrillex a few years ago uh they can't they contact me before because i'd also done another 20 meter head in um in an opera in Bregenz in Austria, which is uh, the one on the lake. Um, one of them features in a James Bond film, so probably seen one of the stages, if not aware of it. But it's uh, they every two years they build an absolutely fantastic stage, and you watch the whole thing open air. Um, and I was fortunately involved in one of those um, with David Fielding, who's a great designer. Um, and that was another twenty meter head, basically, in in a in a lake instead of a field. But um, so, if anyone wants a twenty meter head, then <laughs> know it's come. Well, tell me a bit about uh, what was the brief when when the brief came to you. Well, there's no brief. I sat in their office really while they came up with lots of ideas, and I tried to visualise them as quickly as possible. Is that the, the final form is completely different to? how it started. Um, I think they just knew they wanted something and it was a slow process to feel their way towards it. Um, Later on, it crystallised into something when we were doing the content stuff, but at the beginning, it was just try and sort of be their hands, as it were. So perhaps they had the idea that they wanted a head or kind of a... a... Yeah. What does that represent? It was that kind of... That that was the question, really. You know, is it just a head in a field or does what does it mean? So it was how do you represent that too? There's quite a lot of um, philosophical debates and stuff going on. So when they first approached you, what did they ask from you? Um, 
Well, because I'd worked with them before, they knew that I was able to sort of operate the 3D side of things quickly enough that they could brainstorm and I could visualise it as quickly as possible. So that's the, at that stage, that was what the, that's what the involvement was. After that, you start, we started to move into more like, what about the content? How's that going to go on there? And we were able to sort of visualise that a little bit as well. Pre-visualisation allows the making of the show before production begins. Every department can benefit from previs. It's a really important tool when it comes to communicating an idea. In this case, it took the form of Mike's model of the head, which um, Gideon and Steve envisaged. However, in films, it could be an entire scenic world, which is previs. Often, pre-visualisations are used to secure financial backing and uh, they're really useful in predicting realistic cost estimations for the construction of a production. Gone are the days of an idea sketched on the back of a napkin. But pre-visualisation isn't just a hoop which productions have to jump through now. It actually allows for greater experimentation. The development team are able to build many different variations of a design with a much lower burn rate. Conceptualising a design in 3D also allows the team to see a stage how the audience would see it in real life. And this is a huge benefit when planning the, the placement of content design. What, what was the core design ideas behind the content that you then projected onto the, onto the sculpture, onto the stage? Okay, so there was there's two strands to this. There's obviously it's a club night to an extent with kind of more slightly more challenging artists, but it's still we still had to fill up a certain number of hours with a bunch of content for four nights. So there was that side of it, and then there was also a twenty minute um, kind of showcase narrative piece that we worked on AV three D, and that had that had a strong point to it you know, a narrative point and Gideon and Steve have very specific aesthetic as well so everything had to fit with that too it wasn't sort of do whatever the hell you like you know because they're very they're very uh, good at sort of keeping it consistent and making sure it fits with their block nine vision you know was there experimentation with um, which areas would be projected or the angles yeah, definitely straight away. That was almost one of the first things that happened. Part of the challenge is that uh, the audience is spread out over a wide area and the people on the left and the people on the right seeing completely different things to each other. So you have to take that into account. There's a lot of chat about that. How do we um, make sure that this still means something to somebody who can't see inside the visor, for example? Uh, again, that was something that Knox got involved in because he could sort of use... We could just chuck things at it and they'd just play them back on the surface using projector lights and things like that, and you can um, move around it. Again, you can do this in other software, but this is much faster. It's just a faster workflow because everything is running in real time and not um, other softwares, maybe slower or, you know. Yeah, we were just able to use this quite early on and, and, and continue using it our way through, really. What does an average day look like for you during production? Well, I was essentially kind of technical director and 3D artist at the same time. I was trying to do both making sure that other people were... It was a setup that other people could work with, but I was also trying to make stuff as well. There wasn't a lot of time for that in the end. I spent a lot of time getting the fundamental technology stuff right as well. 
Because we only had about two or three months to do all of the video for it, absolutely everything. So that was not a lot of time. And uh, we had some great people working with us. We had a shop in Bristol. Dylan was doing the edit for AV3D, so he was up against it with that, and he was taking charge of a lot of stuff as well. Dylan Byrne, that is. Okay, so how was it working remotely on one project? Well, that's just well, that's the way the world is at the moment. Everyone is spread out now, I think, to get find good people. You often can't just rely on them being in your town. So this is the way we all have to work in the future, I think, is more and more of this. So figuring figuring out how there's things like Frame.io and Slack and everything that allow this to actually happen. Yeah, I, think, I mean, it's always better if they're in the office with you, but it's just not possible all the time, is it? So. And what was the workflow between you guys? Um, well, they were kind of self-contained, actually. Once we'd given them the, the, the setup and the model and stuff, they just went off and sorted it out themselves. So they were great. And uh, when you talk about the setup, what, what, what does that involve? Well, so we had a final finalised 3D mesh in the end of the head and the visor. First thing you had to do really is create a UV map of the head and the visor that would represent each side of this correctly. It was kind of logically laid out so you could see how it would map just by looking at it. Like it's really important to get that right. And uh, what tools were you using throughout the pre-visualization and design process? Right at the beginning, ZBrush all the time for modeling, um, 3ds Max, that's for mesh manipulation and UV mapping. Okay, so you so you modelled uh, using ZBrush and then 3ds Max for... 3ds Max is where, where the kind of... It's an intermediate between the real world and ZBrush world. ZBrush was just probably way too heavy or they're just not right. So you have to get that into a format by retopology or whatever in, um, in 3ds Max and then you can UV that retopologized version. So that's a lower res... A lower res version of the mesh which you can easily manipulate and work with then you can also send that to the people like in block nine there's sam who's working on the even more reality version which is in rhino which was the this is how it's going to be made physically by real people in real workshops so i gave him and the, the skin mesh did the rest in rhino um for that part so the mesh that you created also in, in the early stages of production was used for kind of architectural, almost, you know, structural design, but then also taken into uh, for the content design. Too. Yeah, yeah, basically it all comes from the same place. So it's um, if you do it correctly in the first place, then life is a lot easier. But if you're trying to fight with something later on that hasn't been set up right, then you're in a world of trouble, so... And did that mean that you could have both the um, structure being built and the content being designed at the same time? Yeah, the structure went off and they were, I think they tweaked a little bit, but it was not in a, enough of a way to derail us. So it was absolutely fine. You can, uh, yeah, you can, there's a leeway to, to sort of fix certain things as long as it doesn't affect that UV map, because that would have meant everything getting re-rendered, which would have been horrible. So... That had to get signed off and not changed at all. UV maps are a weird one because they're talked about a lot and we all know they're important, especially in projection mapping, but ask any senior designer to explain what UV maps are and it will stump them for at least a moment. UV is short for a mathematical equation used to apply a 2D texture to a 3D shape. 
So a popular example which many animators and designers use is um, this idea of unwrapping the tinfoil wrapper from a chocolate Santa Claus. Um, but perhaps a cardboard box is a better example there are, where there are seams in the flattened card. So these seams become the edges of the box when folded into a cube. This sounds pretty simple, but creating the UV can take some time to get perfect. If the UV is wrong, then the model is useless. So it's, it's really worth spending some time on getting things accurate. Curved spaces are very difficult because you want the polygons to appear perfectly flat in the UV. So you can imagine the many different shapes which make up a 3D head like Icon um, would, would be a complete headache. So it's important to maintain a consistent textile density or texture space when you apply a texture. Inconsistency will result in warped or distorted patterns when it comes to mapping or projecting your 2D content. Orientation is also really important if you're working with directional movement or lines in your content design. So once you had your UV map, um, where did you where did you take that into? What was the next step there? Um, well, that's when we could get Notch involved for both creating content um, to render it out directly onto the UV map. For example, for the 20-minute piece, there was bits where we were getting really detailed with sort of particle effects and um, you can't render them directly to UV camera. We'd be projecting from one set of UVs to another using various camera setups in between layers in Notch, which meant that actually you could use, you could create anything you liked pretty much and not worry about whether it would project back onto the map because it did just work. So once you had created the templates for um, your canvas, you were free to create pretty much whatever you, you yeah. wanted. Yeah, definitely. And I think that was... Well, it does take quite a long time to get there, and then you've once you're there, you're left with only a bit of time to do the stuff this time around. But the structure's all set up now. For future projects? For future. Well, I th this is not the end of it. I think they're going to take it on further. So, um, Would you mind uh, telling me a bit about the 3D elements you created for the content? Okay, well, so there was a few things here where we were really trying to hit some points in the, in the brief for the 20-minute piece so there was a kind of a, a decay section there's a, a like a skeletal section there's um there's like a sort of growth fungal mycelium kind of part and these these kind of got they got narrowed down to these along with a video edit that went along with it and um so i was i sat there making a lot of particle systems in notch and using this projection system I just talked about uh, to put that on the UV map, basically. Uh, the just advantage of this is it's so fast to to get a look going and get the uh, you know get the get the look right. You could do all this in Max, but it would always take longer because it's it's about getting the look as well, and that's that means it's multi-stage process in Max. You've got going to after render it and going to After Effects or whatever, and this is all just coming straight out in Notch being generated in there and pumped out as a final UV. Perfect, basically. Saved us a lot of time. And when you're uh, creating <clears throat> these kind of mycelium or decay looks, are you using real-life references and then uh, recreating that by eye using particle systems? Well, it's a, yeah, a bit of that. It's interesting. They had a lot of reference material, so it's a lot of imagery that they really loved it's almost too much of it it's quite hard to sort of narrow it down to 
one thing. And you sort of have to interpret that somehow using the techniques you might know about already. And I think it's the same with any brief, really. It's like, how do you turn maybe an art director's mad vision of craziness into one thing you can actually do and not, you know, and do it within the time frame? Um, so then you do something and they might, well, they'll either sign it off or go, well, that's not it. Try again. I think that's the usual process, really. Same as anything else. Same as most jobs. And with the speed and motion of the particles, what was your decision-making process there? Well, that had to fit the music. Those f- the 20-minute piece had, had some bespoke music edit done by Gideon, actually, and that, using various artists, and those, that's divided it into sections. And the section, for example, where the skin turns to dust is a long, slow end sort of feel, and that dictates how it feels. It's slow and kind of beautiful. Uh, definitely start with the soundtrack. That's always important as well, uh, if you can. Yeah. So do you listen while you create? Yeah, well, you have to. You definitely have to for a bit. I mean, it's quite hard if you're on a band you hate, but <laughs> not on this one. This is cool. But, um, yeah, if you've got a job with an artist that you don't necessarily like that much, then you have to just listen to it as much as you can stand, don't you? But And put something else. <laughs> yeah, I've done music video editing, yeah. so it definitely makes it better. Now I won't do it if I don't like the track, I'll be oh, like... Oh, no, yeah, God, because it like, no. drills into your brain for the rest of eternity. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me a bit about um, the CCTV... Well, I noticed I was on camera when I was in Glastonbury. Tell me a little bit about the CCTV elements of the show. Yes, that was another bit of real-time content that was going on with uh, CCTV. Uh, We had a load of them dotted around, um, pointing into the audience, and we were kind of manipulating that in real-time with all these cool effects. Uh, I think that was going through touch designer a bit as well. I think I got fed in, zooming in on faces and things like that. Um, It just added a sort of a, a creepy layer, and it fitted in with the narrative or the story behind the sculpture. This this thing, is it watching you? Are you watching it? Was there anything particularly challenging about this production? The amount of time available, as usual, which is always in everything, never enough. I think this this whole thing of what I just said about having multiple angles and surfaces, it's just getting your head around that. How is, what is the workflow for this? How, how are people going to edit it? How are people going to work with it and visualise it? And there's, that's, again, part of a lot of the job was setting that up and you know, so Dylan doing his edit, he had huge premiere project, which had sort of 30 layers or something, 40 layers, and it was absolutely mental. But because he could pipe it out with NDI to notch, we could pre-visit all the time, constantly, just add another monitor, even do it on another computer or the network, um, and just see how it's going to look at all times. So you're editing straight into the UV map, but it's piping out and you're constantly seeing a, a preview which is really helpful. You can't do that directly in Premiere. There's no way, other way of doing it. So, I th- again, it's just, a, it's just useful to have a tool that does all of these different things in one. What was your workflow with Dylan? Well, basically Dylan did, he was sort of marshalling the whole thing and that was a big job and it's just, just to kind of get his head around it was, I think, uh, impressive in the first place. I just provided these elements, these sort of single sections, these kind of moments with the 3D rendered stuff. 
The rest of the time, it was him on his own battling it, I think, really. Once we got the technical set up right, then he, he just went off and smashed it. So, <laughs> I mean, I've worked with him loads, so um, we're used to each other. And there's a lot of moving spinning plates. There's a lot of yeah, the whole, plates yeah, spinning. Yeah, the whole thing was one massive spinning plate. What advice can you give to any designers who want to create content for an unusual 3D canvas? Um, well, that's all about previews, really. It's just getting that workflow set up so you can always see what's going to look like. I think it's really important. Get that right at the beginning. It's always going to be pixel maps, UV maps, models that are lightweight and you can work with and you know it's it's kind of basic stuff really but it's pretty important so you had to create elements for three evenings of performances four oh for four yeah for four evenings of performances how many people do you estimate worked purely on the content for icon well there's shop who is what is that four or five i think it's four or five people perhaps they definitely provided a lot of stuff did a really good job at just boshing loads of stuff out. Um, there was uh, Adam and Tree Car. They were researching footage, which took... That's a job in itself, obviously. So uh, kind of sourcing archive. Sourcing footage. archive, yeah. Paul Gardner, who's helping us out with some of the video elements. And there was Blinking Lab, who did a bit as well, stuff to, towards the end. But that's it, really. There wasn't a lot of people on it. And uh, were you on site at Glastonbury? Yeah, I was there for the week before. I think they went up a month before, but uh, we were in a sweaty port cabin. It was heat wave going on. Um, every fan we could get our hands on in there. <laughs> Pretty fun. It was hot. It was, yeah, it was, it was too really hot. hot. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There's no shade there as well. It's just relentless. I know. You'd think they'd put up some structures to prevent you from rain if it rains. I think they're not used to it. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're not really, but... No. I think everyone's grumbling about that more than the rain. I know. I think one of my friends almost melted, like gen genuinely, uh, like a melted candle. Um, okay, so what did, uh, what did a day on site look like? Uh, well, crawl out of bed having a two-hour sleep, I suppose. Drink like a Red the rest Bull. of us. <laughs> yeah. Um, stumble up to the porter cabin, fight a few more fires, spin a few more plates. <laughs> Scott was there by then, Scott from, uh, who's with Bill Studios at that point. Um, and, you know, Scott's amazing at getting the kind of technology working, the actual real-life stuff. Um, when he's around, you know, things tend to work pretty well anyway, uh, which is great. So once you've got that worry out of your head, then you can just concentrate on your bit, and um, that really helps, definitely. But, yeah, there was always the tension uh, and stuff, when things are getting close to showtime, it's a bit adrenalised, but I like that, you know. Do you have any um, coping mechanisms for, I guess, that, that tension or the buzz or the adrenaline uh, or the lack of sleep? That's good... Yeah, because you have too many Red Bulls, then you get more tension. But if you don't have enough, you fall asleep. So it's a high wire act. <laughs> Careful balance. Yeah. How much of the content that you created was rendered and how much was real-time? Everything you saw that was uh, an animation or archive was uh, pre-rendered and played from the media server. But we had, so we had a lighting setup in Notch, which would add to that, which we could use uh, to extend the material. We had quite a lot, so we could add strobes and sort of lighting shadow effects. And, um, and that was controlled with a, a, a little MIDI controller by... 
Um, we had VJs doing every night, um, who also brought in their own content too, actually, as well. Uh, there's Matteo Zamangi and Claudio Giambusa. They were up all night, every night, uh, pressing buttons and uh, didn't have a chair to sit on either. So, <laughs> Wow, yes, they did the night shift. They all looked a bit frazzled by the end. What, what do you think is the next big thing in animation? Well, I mean, real-time engines are not just uh, blowing smoke up your asses, but real-time engines are the next big thing. You know, you've got Unreal Engine as well, and the level of quality that's starting to come out of real-time is getting up there. You can use it not just for kind of pre-rendered movie, but you could also make it interactive or VR as well at the same time. Um, I think, you know, it's another tool, and it's, but it gives you another... Because I think it gives animators a few more opportunities to try things that are not just a 16-9 screen on a computer or a TV, you know. There's loads of avenues opening up with real-time graphics, I think. And what's something that excites you about the direction the industry is going right now? Well, I think it's just the tools getting better, really. It's the... It's, well, going back to that first job we did, and, and we had to bring a desktop in a suitcase because a laptop just wasn't good enough for half of what we're trying to do. And now you can do all of that with a laptop and more, much more. You know, it's just everything, all the tools are better, all the software is better, all the hardware is better. And it just makes life much more fun because you're not battling. There is still a battle with the technology, but it's not quite as primal as it was then, I think. And is there anyone that you'd like to take the opportunity to spotlight on this project in particular? Well, uh, definitely everyone at Block 9. Um, they're all brilliant, lovely people. Uh, Alexa as well, who's the producer. She was really good, ran around, sorted everything out. And yeah, everyone else involved in actually making it for real, because that was a massive job. I didn't really meet any of them. I don't know who they were, but um, they were all, you know, what a job it's amazing like identical to the 3d really which is impressive i'd say <laughs> i wasn't expecting it to be so close but, but yeah ultimately steve and gideon because they're uh, geniuses okay well we should probably wrap it up here mike it's been great to find out the inner working of this incredible production thanks so much for your time thank you and Block9, head over to their website, block9.com, or you can follow them on Instagram at block9official. To read this interview and check out images, videos, and the node graphs that made it happen, head over to the Notch website, notch.one forward slash showcases. Tweet us with your thoughts on today's episode at NotchVFX. If there are any burning questions you'd like to ask about real-time workflows, hit me up, hashtag showcast. You can get a daily update of incredible projects made with Notch by following our Instagram, NotchVFX. Thanks for listening.